Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week, my guest is Chi Tai, an independent filmmaker and producer who works across features, documentary, animation, and immersive. She has produced over 13 short films, been a Cannes Lion finalist three times, had her work screened at BAFTA and Academy-accredited festivals, and exec produced the documentary short Little Miss Sumo, written and directed by Matt Kay, which you can currently watch on Netflix. Chi is also an alumnus of the Guiding Light Scheme and Network at LFF and a Screen Daily Star of Tomorrow. Her production company Last Conquer is also a recipient of the BFI Vision Award and she is currently producing BIFA-nominated writer-director Paris Zarzilla's debut feature Raging Grace. We talk about how Chi blagged her way into film school, her words, not mine, how she has gained confidence as a producer, the ethos and mission behind her production company Last Conquer, and how the climate crisis and her ambition to work with storytellers from the East and Southeast Asian diaspora spearheads her producing and advocacy work. We also discuss not getting the BFI Vision Award the first time she applied, what the money has allowed her to do when she was awarded it, and why she chose to invest the money in a variety of initiatives, and how she's working towards dismantling the structures that marginalise underrepresented groups in the film industry. I hope you enjoy this episode. Chi is someone who has a lot of experience and a very clear sense, I think, of what needs to change in the film industry and how she can help affect that. So it was definitely a galvanising conversation and I was really delighted to be able to speak with her. This is episode 107 of Best Girl Grip. So let's kick off. Uh, I I tend to start with um, higher education, so I'd love to know if you went to university and if so, what you studied there. I did go to university. I went to the University of Durham and I read anthropology. I suppose the more interesting story there is actually I didn't go to university directly after A-levels. I, I actually pretty much like kind of ran off and did like two years as a gap year after A-levels and kind of disappeared uh, and travelled and then came back after like I think it was a summer and I was like, and actually I should say what I should preface that by saying, I was all set up to go to university after mm. I did my A-levels and realized I just couldn't do it. Like, I just wasn't ready to carry on and study more. And some of that is a kind of very personal because I had a very, my, you know, my life kind of growing up was a little complicated. I'm a refugee, came to the country as a refugee. And my parents, bless them, have those struggles in terms of raising a family in a country they don't know, in a language they don't speak, and so on and so on. So we had, we had lots of challenges as a, as a family. And I just found after A-levels, I just couldn't bear the thought of going to like, I had to, I needed some escape and I did that. And it was, pro- you know, I probably should have done it under better circumstances. <laughs> I think my mum knows that now, but I basically left like everything for two years. And then when I came back, my university place, like I, like I said, I had been set up to go to university and do whatever, but I had to kind of give that up. So when I came back, I was a bit like, shit what am I gonna do (laughs) and I called up you know the universities that had made me offers and this and that and nobody wanted me anymore but I saw University of Durham had spaces so I went to I went through clearing which is probably considered like some like horrendous failure but I called up University of Durham they looked at my grades they spoke to me and I and I said I, I wanted to read anthropology mainly because I didn't know what I wanted to do but it was general enough that I was like it doesn't matter. 
mm. and it was like general enough and interesting enough is like I can I can I can do this and so I did go to university but how I got there was a little odd well I say it's interesting because I've not long had an interview with someone that's gone into producing studied anthropology mm-hmm. and you know, it, it does come up as something that I think links the two, you know, filmmaking is often about observing human behaviour. And so it's it's funny that those two things kind of do seem quite symbiotic. So I wonder whether you had any interest in filmmaking at that point or anything that was giving you a, a clue that maybe you might end up in the film industry. So I don't want to say it was in a far more abstract way, but I probably knew I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was about seven, but not really like um like in a very abstract way in thinking that looks really awesome and not just falling in love with films falling in love with filmmaking mm. and thinking there's something really interesting there but it took me a long time I would say it took me until the point of my final year at university to realize I wanted to go to film school even though in my teenage years my kind of escapism was all through all through films I had like pretty much loved movies since a very young kid and that just never left. And then in, in my teenagers, you know, wanting to be creative, you know, and desperately seeking escape, but not being able to leave home yet, I literally escaped through cinema. And like, while my, my, my older sister was sneaking out to kiss boys behind the bike sheds <laughs> and smoke bags, I would be sneaking out to go to the local ABC and trying to watch films, right? Mm. Or going to our local um, blockbuster and giving myself the kind of film education. So it'd been a very big part of my life for a long, for a long time. And I can trace it back to like as you know, a moment for sure when I was a kid, but I never had the courage to think, you know, what should I do? And because my parents were like there is, there's a known thing that first generation refugees and immigrants are almost like more culturally orthodox because there's a sense of like desperately wanting to hold on to traditions. So they can often be more, they become as a result of coming to a new country, like they can become more like culturally regressive or like hold on to tradition much more than their peers in the, the home country. And so my 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 parents, my mum was very tough and strict on us. So the need to escape that is what's kind of entwined with all of that. So what was it about perhaps the final year of university that suddenly gave you the freedom uh, to, to think that this might be a possible career if that's when it happened? Oh, you make me sound brave. It's, it's not at all. It's more that I knew like I didn't want to be an anthropologist. Like, And actually, like in answer to the question you said, you you had recently like interviewed someone who had that you know kind of background. I have found it useful. And actually... My first year kind of studying anthropology was brilliant. Like it put lots of kind of things into place that I was kind of thinking. So I've always kind of found it useful, but I, I never wanted to be an anthropologist. And there's always this kind of thing in the back of my head, which is like, you know, I think this is what I want to do, but never speak it out loud. Because again, my family are very traditional. You wouldn't even broach the subject of like, you want to be a filmmaker. There are really only a few options kind of open to you. So it was something I would think about, but never talk about but I actually kind of knew that's what I wanted to do luckily I had a very very good friend she's my best friend we're still best friends and I said to her one day in my final year I was like I'm thinking of applying to film school like very kind of quietly and timidly and she was like yes do it do it now <laughs> and to us if she had like responded any other way I might not have applied to go to film school like if someone had gone like what what are mm. you thinking like you know um 
but she was like yes and I I and I'd say having no experience in film or filmmaking in the way that I think traditionally one might expect for film school I blagged my way into film school and that was kind of the beginning of then kind of everything and was that a specific course or it was kind of film more broadly was it practical you know what were you studying at film school I think I don't think it really exists anymore in the way that it existed when when I went. But I went to the Northern Film School, which was in Leeds, which is basically in this beautiful square of like probably Georgian buildings, like townhouses. And one was like the production house and one was mm. the post-production house. And the film school was basically they recruited, I want to say, five or six producers, five or six directors, DPs editors sound designers so and so it was very small so very small group of people 25 maybe 35 something like that and you just made films and there was a kit room and in the post-production there was like two pro tool suites two edit suites in the production space there was production office and there was actually a space where you could actually build a set in the kit room and there was very little teaching like next to zero it was just like you know, you got some money to make a post-grad film and a, uh, and a master's film, and you just did that. So it was entirely practical, no theory, or at least if there was, I didn't turn up. I, you know, I just tried to figure out how to make films there. And I could say it was a fairly disastrous, like, experience, but I knew I wanted to do more of it. So in many ways, it was, like, really informative as well. I assume you were producing. That was that was kind yes, of what you were yes. doing there. And what kind of producer were you and how has that evolved into the kind of producer you are today? Oh, God, I hadn't a clue. I, I went for producing. See, this is like, and when I say I blagged my way, like I had this kind of, you know, idea of what filmmaking was, but I really was kind of, I would say, completely clueless. But I was like, I think I can go for that one. It's the least technical. Like, <laughs> Of all those, I can't do those other things. But and I, but I can blag. That is something that I can do and have quite a bit of experience doing. So I, I applied. They interviewed me. I think there's a shortage on producer applicants that year. Can I just say? <laughs> and I was like, I got a place, and I, and it was like the most money I'd ever spent in my life at that point. I had to get a career development loan to pay to pay to go. And actually, I fell in love with producing there. And I did have, I think, a pretty. I didn't have a great experience at film school. Like I kind of felt like being back at high school again. So I had a miserable time at high school and things got better for me at, at kind of sixth form. But it was like, it's like being, everyone's picking their teams and I'm mm. like, nobody picks me because I know nothing. I wouldn't pick me at that point. But so it was hard to find my place mm. in the film school. And it was just very bit by bit. And I suppose the one single thing I learned at film school was can't undervalue niceness. Everyone is having their little, I think they're making their films and all falling out. It's all very, let's say, heightened at this kind of film school. You know, it's, it's, it's emotional. I'm just like, just really nice. Like that's my superpower at film school. It's just like everything else is falling apart, but I'll just carry on kind of be nice. And I think that's probably something I've tried to carry on. Just like when things get really difficult, I'm not the person that raises the temperature. We'll just be like super, super nice and chill about this. And that's definitely a kind of a lesson. Would you pick you now? Do you feel like you're confident in your abilities as a producer now? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had my moments with imposter syndrome, like we all do. And it, it comes back and forth. Like it doesn't like you don't you don't slay that dragon and then it's kind of put to sleep forever. 
And the other thing I should kind of fess up to is that I'm probably much older than most people you speak to. I'm a 40 something working mother. I don't know. I've just reached an age. Like I seriously don't give two shits anymore about certain things and certain attitudes. There is a confidence about, I kind of feel about being a working parent, being coming from the roots of, of being a refugee, having to fight for kind of every, for your place right now. And I feel very kind of, I feel very confident about my abilities, but as a result, I feel very angry at the world, uh, how they value me. So you can have that confidence and you, and then I feel like I've earned it. And I actually take complete umbrage to anyone who tries to strip me of my value. But at the same time, I then, I feel I occupy a space where I know my value, but the truth is I don't really feel like a lot of the world does. And then that creates an anger. I should I say, I'm very comfortable with that as well, because it's, it's really kind of driven me to do kind of certain things in a certain mm. way and so forth. We'll definitely kind of, I'm sure, come back to talk about that with your (laughs) advocacy work, because I think you're doing a lot to sort of make, you know, other people recognise your value and the value of your peers. But I'd love to come back to sort of thinking about post-graduation and how you uh, charted a path to your first producing credit. I don't know if it, it if it's like to the first producing credit, but I left I left film school and I'd finished, you know, two films and had some experience, knew I wanted to do more. And to a certain element, there was a visiting lecturer and he offered me a kind of my my first job, kind of doing promos and things like that. And I can I would I would say I kind of got a little bit sucked into, into that because I never kind of you know, never wanted to be a filmmaker that did those things and it's been great like I, I learned so much through that kind of chapter in my life you know in terms of short form which I think you know is even kind of helpful now so it, I kind of find like your career for me never took the route that you kind of expected or wanted it to there's been like a lot of very happy accidents along the way so I did a kind of worked in that space for a while so there's kind of kind of credits there pre the days where everybody would put everything on IMDB right so there's all that stuff there but all along that time, I knew I wanted to really be making movies and and everything. So that you know, it it took it it took me a long time <laughs> to get to where I want wanted to. And so then I'm interested at what point you set up Last Conquer, which is your production company, because presumably at that point there was a bit of momentum. You know, you felt like there was a requirement to have a company behind you, or that you could produce. Oh, I wish it a banner. <laughs> I wish it was as as um, clean and as well thought out. That's like there's been many, like I say, many happy connections. So Last Conquer wasn't always Last Conquer. So I had there was a film I was going to make, which I'm so glad I didn't make in the end. And I'd set up the company to make that film, and I had to set up. I was forced to set up because I had raised the money through SEIS. And then I didn't end up making that film as it happens. And I would just say my, my whole history is littered with the dead bodies of development, right? I'm just going to say there's, there's hundreds of them there. And that's kind of one of them. But while that film wasn't being made for, you know, all the usual kind of reasons, I did start putting other productions through it. And only at that point as a very like, I need a company in a bank account to run things through. There's a company in a bank account. Let's not create a new one. And I did that and it was it was really useful. So then at the point where I get the vision award, I was like, this company isn't really me. Like it's not what I'm about. So I just renamed it. So the company has actually been around for a while, but it wasn't last con- conquer until I think 
I want to say like 18 months ago, really, which is when it was all official about the Vision Award. And I, the other thing I'll say is like, I was rejected for the Vision Award first time around. And I say that as to encourage people to like, try again and try again. Then my question is, what does Last Conquer mean? Like, why is that more like, why does that chime more with kind of who you are as a producer? And also, like, what is the vision, I guess? I'm really hoping the vision is clear on the, the website. But there's probably two things I'm really, really interested in right now. And I realise that could change, you know. The first thing is working with East and Southeast Asian kind of filmmakers is kind of one thing. And then the other thing is really climate. The truth is, like, we should all be doing stuff about climate <laughs> right now. I kind of feel it supersedes kind of everything, but they're the kind of two 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 things I'm I'm kind of here to do, and Last Conquer is here to do that and do work in in that in that space. So, given the specificity of your aims, like, how do you go about finding storytellers or talent that gel with that, and that you feel like are telling the stories that you also want to tell? Everything's a journey, I think, as a as a as a filmmaker. So, I found my collaborators like you know grad you know kind of gradually the east and southeast asian kind of filmmakers are fairly easy to find and at this stage they also kind of find me i'd say like i've got now i think such a big body of work in that space like if you look at all my kind of recent credits it involves east and southeast asian kind of filmmakers and i typically have people writing to me kind of fairly regularly about you know kind of working together or giving them help or assistance and things like that so i kind of feel it's doing what it is doing and you know it wasn't doing that like five years ago so it has been kind of gradual I do think as a criticism kind of within the kind of filmmaking community for I don't know if this is specific to East and Southeast Asian filmmakers but they're very fragmented there's a wonderful thing in the kind of the acting community where East and Southeast Asian community have kind of much more kind of come together but I think that filmmakers that we we feel like there's not like a group and there's definitely certain efforts to kind of remedy that but it does feel like really fragmented when I was coming through and I'm still coming through finding other people like me was it just wouldn't happen like that was kind of really hard so making that community you know kind of resolving those kind of the fragmentation has been has been part of the work too but it's I think it's you know it's kind of slowly happening you referenced there what is an incredibly prolific body of work. And I'm wondering, you know, how you go about balancing all the projects on your slate and kind of prioritising those that are perhaps in development with those that are sort of heading more towards production. You know, how do you juggle the slate that you're currently producing? So the other thing I should probably like fess up to is like, so I think people like, maybe it's slightly less experienced people, but less conquer I should just say is just me. There's not like another person and a person to do this and a person to that and everything. Like I do everything, you know, I don't have a development person or anything like that. Like I, I work across, across everything. I find projects have their natural kind of ebb and flow. There is a kind of a life cycle of a project and at a certain time they demand more or less of you at that point. And so far, except for a few like moments of pinch points, like I've, I've been, I've been okay. And the question is, how do I scale up from this? Because I'm probably already working to my max at the moment. So I have a feature film that's in post-production at the moment. I have probably, I don't know, three projects in paid development. I've got the vision award that like looks over a certain number of projects and, and this and that. And at the moment, it's a lot, but it's okay. It's probably at the expense of a personal life. 
it's fine. And sometimes this one needs a lot of you and sometimes it's this one and it kind of changes. I think speaking kind of like kind of directly, like to actually take the next step to have a pipeline to have, it probably means more people, but that means more money. And then the more money is a big question mark, right? Where you get the more money from to, to do all those things. So especially if you're trying your best to grow organically and not take in kind of more investment. And the thing is, I do want to grow. I actually want to have an entire empire is what I want. Growth at some point for sure, but also like when more money comes in and having been on the hook for private investment and still on the hook, um, as well as working with public funding, it's a different kind of stress. Suddenly taking in all this extra money, you know, it does mean other things. So I think there's a part of me that feels like, you know, being able to grow organically, I'd feel happy with mainly because I really do want to do my own things and I don't want to be puppet mastered by a group of other people. So, yeah, so there's a balance with those things. You spoke there about the life cycle of films. I'm wondering if there's like a part of the process that you enjoy the most or more than others. You know, if there's an element of producing that you feel particularly good at or other, are there other elements that you feel like you have to work at? I love it all. I love it all. But I'm probably going to say the thing that's like horrific now to so many filmmakers. I probably enjoy when I'm in producing mode, being on set the least. I probably derive the least kind of enjoyment out of that, out of that stage and in that in that position. Like I've come to really value all the things that make filmmaking really hard, whether that's developing project, finding the money, wrangling people making audiences like I've actually come to really enjoy those things I I like the fact that they're not easy I like the fact that they're really hard I like the fact that I'm always learning I like the fact that I begin a project not knowing anything and end a project being an expert in those things I just find the production element quite boring and I think if you're really really well resourced the truth is probably don't need a producer on set a great deal like you can leave those things I, so this is probably sacrilege for so many people like you know but yeah it's probably the section if I'm in that role like that just interests me the least and there are far better people doing the job they need to do there line producers and everybody else to make sure that your film is delivered on your schedule and on, on budget kind of wanting you know kind of being there for the director making sure that things been we're making the film we set out to make you know that's the kind of most important thing but otherwise I I feel a bit like a spare part I want to come back briefly to to Last Conquer and the aims that you set out on your website and one of them is to dismantle the conditions or the structures that marginalize storytellers from east and southeast Asian diaspora I'm wondering what that process of dismantling looks like to you. You know, how, how have you been going about that process of dismantling? Well, there's many ways you can do it. I should say, like, the, one of the most meaningful ways you do that is, like, in the work that you do, kind of naturally. So, like, producing the work, working, you know, those are all acts of that. There are other routes which are much more direct. So, for instance, like, advocacy and I've done, I've done, I did a fairly intense and long stint doing that in a very direct way. And I say, it's just, it's really, really hard. It's really rewarding. It's really about holding power holders to account, but that just, it's all about discomfort and it's not without its risks. When you are speaking to people, which are at the end of the day, you know, people with commissioning power, 
you know, funding power about how they are possibly failing. And you there as a as a producer are having those conversations. They're not safe spaces, but it's very, it can be impactful, but it's just not without its, like say, without its risks and its dangers. And I think in that space where advocacy is very direct, there's there's a emotionally it's very heightened, it can be very toxic, it can be very political. So it's 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 difficult. But the payoff is potentially how, how the, the fact that you can get to change possibly faster. Like I think through some of that work, and I'm not just talking about, about me, but you know, about a wider group of people. I do think like positive change has been made. It's still very slow. Every day it feels at the moment I read something from Deadline and a new Asian American show has been commissioned. You know, we still haven't had that in the UK. We haven't had like a primetime TV drama say that's come out for, I think since something like 1979, you know, the last show that had a, and that was even, can I say, authored by anyone from East or Southeast Asian descent. That's just having a person in a main role on TV. That path is very direct, but it's very hard. There are other ways which are less direct. You know, I've been involved in data studies, talent development labs. Like I knew, for instance, with the Vision Award that what I wanted to do is put some of that behind, behind, you know, helping, you know, more more emerging filmmakers and so forth. So there's different ways. About two years ago, almost two years ago, I went to this wonderful lab that the Doc Society had set up called Climate Story Lab and I had a project in there. One of the things and I, I, I found it so relevant to so many kind of things I've thought about since then aside from climate but you can apply the same thing to diversity and inclusion as well but I think there's this feeling that one thing may come and just save us all and the truth is it isn't and for climate and for many of the problems that we have in our time be it you know systemic power structures and colonialism or the patriarchy or whatever it's there's not this kind of one one thing it's going to be a million different things and so I suppose a lot of the work it's like yes it's this and yes it's this and and it's this and I do this and I do this and I've been criticized in the past for serving a very broad church I don't know if that's just to do with like the impatience I want to be alive still when change is happening I want to be, I want to benefit from that change. So I will do as much as I can in the, with what I have in the time that I have to make sure that I do my bit. I want to dig a little bit further into the piece of work you did with data called the Exclusion Act, but also the development lab you facilitated. And I guess my question is, what do you see as being the benefit of this multi-pronged approach? Like, is there a tactic there or is it simply about being interested in lots of different things? Everything is connected and everything overlaps. And I find as a, I don't know if you find this as yourself, but for me, like it's like being a filmmaker, it means you've chosen a creative life, an artistic life. And there are, for me, in that choice, no separations between, you know, for better or worse, no separations between my work life, my family life and my personal life like I actually find it all informs each other but in the same way a family life very much informs 
the work life, everything's kind of flowing into the kind of same space. So there's not like this demarcation, this is this, this is whatever. Like it's not to say that there's harmony. There's very kind of, I would say, uneasy truces between, you know, where things kind of rub against each other. But I, for me, having chosen to work in the space, if you care about inclusion, which I do a great deal, and about climate and this and that, it will inform everything that I do. It informs how I parent. It informs, like, you know, how we live to be as environmentally conscious as possible, as, as well as racially conscious. And you bring that into your work. I, I just, I can't find that I can separate the, the person from the producer or the artist, if you were talking about a director or a writer, like, it all comes together because otherwise there's a different thing, which is a hypocrisy, right? So the multi-pronged approach is, I think just as a consequence of just trying to do those things as authentically as you can. It might feel like a bit of a gear change, but I understand you've worked in the VR space a few times. And I'm wondering, you know, what interests you about that? And also if the differences in how the story is told factors into how you produce. So when I started out, I was such a film snob. I'd be like the last person you think working dabbling in VR but over the last I don't know five years maybe a bit longer I've actually become much more agnostic like I'm just not a snob anymore and I really 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 used to be I just kind of feel like choose the right medium for that story I think you have to really qualify rationalize and interrogate why you are telling a story in a certain way and I think once you go down that route of thinking that you go actually maybe it's not a film, maybe it's a comic book, or maybe it's AR, or maybe it's a TV series, or maybe it's this. You're trying to figure out what you want to say and how you want to say it. And then you're just trying to find the right tools and the right medium to kind of do it. There's actually kind of so many ways and we just find the best way. There's a different version of that answer, which is like, I think if you're a filmmaker, then you're probably excited about technology as well. And you want to you want to kind of, you know, it's another sandbox to kind of play in and there's kind of different opportunities. And there was also a sense of like, you know, it's really hard to make money in this industry. And it's like, there's an element of also, yes, I get to play with these other tools and think about stories in another way, but maybe there's another way to make money and I need to make money too. So I can carry on doing things that I do. Right. I would say there's all different kind of forces in, involved in, in that. The things when, once you discover a medium, if you're a filmmaker, cause I think you're always trying to, you're always learning. You're, you're on a journey of discovery. That actually is just really exciting to kind of see, to be given like a new tool to kind of play with and then to, to do the the intellectual puzzle of like going, okay, what can we do with this? So it's a whole number of things. I also want to talk about The Promise, which is a short animation you adapted and directed. And I imagine the reason you did so was, uh, as you say, to kind of play in another sandbox and explore a different side to yourself. But why this particular story and how did it come together? So this is a, a probably really good example of something we were talking about earlier, which is like, you know, that w- once you've chosen that kind of that life, it kind of informs everything. Like I've mentioned, I'm a mum and through being a mum, I had discovered this wonderful book. So first thing I should say is that the, the book, which is like as perfect a book as you can get as a picture book 
and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's about climate and it's about rewilding and it's about redemption is written by an amazing author called Nicola Davies and an astounding illustrator um, called Laura Carlin and I discovered this book through reading it to my kid to my to my to my daughter and it was like it didn't hit me the first time like some things especially these kind of short books they kind of they kind of weave their spell kind of gradually and it was just a book I'd come back to and come back to at the same time as all as that was happening I felt this urgency and this pull to say something about climate and do something and definitely feeling a responsibility and especially with children when you have young children and you and you know you have a you have a very direct understanding of what the future could be and how hard it's going to be and the children that are going to inherit it. So you, I, I really did feel this like strong desire and need to kind of do something in this space and like say continue to as well. And so I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't want to make a documentary and I do work in documentary as well. I didn't want to so like some amazing filmmakers doing amazing work in that space, far better than what I could be doing. So I knew I wanted to do something quite that was in the space of fiction. And then I realized that it was going to be that book. And so everything's quite organic at this stage. And then there was basically a BBC um, call to do shorts about climate. And when I saw that, I was like, yes, this is it. And I kind of also knew at that point that it was something that I'd wanted I'd want to do. It was kind of very personal. Like I'd already made that decision without talking about it, that it wouldn't, it wasn't going to be written and directed by anyone else. Like I was like, I can write this and it's an animation. I can do this if I work very closely with it. I'd already kind of figured those things out without even having a conversation, which probably sounds like madness, but that's, that's the honest truth of kind of how it happens. So I wrote to the author. I met with the author. We got on really, really well. We're really good friends now. And she was like, yes, you can do it. I was like, thank you. <laughs> Um, and then I, I spoke to her publisher, I got the rights, I pitched it to the BBC and they commissioned us. And then I argued with them for about a year about how much they were going to pay us to do it, which I felt was really unfair. Basically, we had peanuts to make to make that film. But in the meantime, while that was happening, I got invited to this wonderful Climate Story Lab and Dot Society were, were hosting, managed to raise more money and raise more money to kind of get out there. So I think that's a really, it doesn't answer the question that you're going to ask me, but as an example, at least of like how, you know, all, all, all roads lead to Rome, like in that sense that, you know, when you choose this life and the things that you want to do, there's a sense of it all kind of coming together. Like I've really felt that as a human, as a parent, you know, as a, as a filmmaker. But I also think it speaks to a flexibility or open-mindedness that you have about not being attached to any one road or any one version of what filmmaking looks like. And I guess being attuned to other opportunities to explore or create, or as you say, uh, as you said before, make money. Aren't we all like that to some degrees? I think all filmmakers are magpies. There's something shiny over there. I want it. <laughs> the wonderful thing about The Promise is it's a kind of wonderful convergence of of like probably all the things that are really important to me like in terms of climate and dni especially in the space of east and southeast asian diaspora that there, it was a film that was kind of operating on all those levels so the team was predominantly east and southeast asian like there was a wonderful thing of what happens when you have a, you know the right amount of creative control 
and probably not never enough money, can I say, to kind of be able to do all those things. And I was supposed the, the best thing about not having a great deal of money to make that film was at the end of the day, the BBC didn't really care about how I did it or who I had and this and that. So I could literally take the money and just do what what I wanted. The thing that I learned through making that project was really understanding climate justice. And it's shaped that the work that I do in a way that I probably was already thinking about, but I wasn't able to crystallize in such a succinct way. And I suppose the work that I do, I just want it to make the world a kind of fairer and greener space, like for all. I want to speak a little bit about money because you have referenced it there. And I know in 2020, you got the Vision Award and, you know, there has been conversations engendered by the collective the producers roundtable about kind of making independent producing a more kind of sustainable and, and fair space. I'm wondering what the Vision Award has enabled you to do, but also I don't I don't know how long that award is. So what does it look like after the award, and and how do you sustain what you do? It's a really thorny question. So I can just say it's been wonderful having the award. Like I've had a really, really, really great experience, and I think I mentioned earlier, like. I applied for it, not the cycle just gone, but the cycle before I had applied to it and um, didn't get it, but got into the final, the final stage and then didn't get it. And then was probably a little bit disappointed. Like any rejection is disappointing. I'm not immune to it, but I don't mind saying that when I found out who they did give it to made me very angry. And it links to kind of lots of things, but it came a galvanizing moment for me. I think it was probably at that point that I allowed my anger to kind of shape you know, my work into different spaces to do kind of different things. And I went for the the Vision Award again. And the tough thing is it only comes around every three years. So there's there is a there is a long wait. I took everything I learned from, I suppose, being rejected that time around to being very clear. Like in the in the three years that had happened, I had a very clear plan of exactly what I was going to spend how I was going to spend the money and what I was going to do it. I don't, it was like very crystal and kind of very succinct. And I kind of, I feel kind of, I feel very grateful to have the vision award. I do also think that this makes me sound like really kind of arrogant. I really earned it as well. You know, I kind of felt like, yes. And in many ways I felt very, very happy that I didn't get it before because I felt like in many ways at the time it was better this time around. So it was actually applying for not getting it and then getting it three years later was actually a journey in itself but it's been wonderful to have to have your overhead covered like for two years which is kind of what it is and it I just say it's a small overhead right and you get some development capital to develop projects to be able to support you know writers and directors and in projects that you want to like it's been incredible and I've done a whole like variety of things with that you know I use it to fund a stop-motion animation film that was you know written by uh, a British East Asian Southeast Asian writer who's doing really well now called Beck Bowie um, to running a development lab called The Big Short and through that lab one of the projects we had on was written by Courtney and she's, I, I'm not allowed to say this has not been announced yet, but I think we can say that she got BFI Network funding. Which is all that I wanted the lab to do was basically be able to help filmmakers prepare and put the best case forward for it to be funded. I put the money into the data study to get that started. 
and the data studies coming back this year. We just got proper funding to do a really big study. And we're working with the BFI and hopefully other some kind of key people. And we're like I say, got proper money, not cheese kind of pennies from the vision award to make to make that happen. As well as, you know, I put you know, that money supported Paris, who's a filmmaker. I'm working with on Raging Grace, which is the film which has been like funded by AMC. That the money, you know, supported him to kind of write that script. And now we've made the film. So across all different ways, uh, I have put that money. And it's been fantastic to do that because I was never able to do it before. I feel very sad that come this September, I won't, you know, have the means to do that anymore. But I hopefully will come into some money at some point to carry on doing that work. I just, I think there's going to be a tiny gap. I'm like, I'm really hoping the feature film is going to really take off. Paris and I are so excited and we have such high hopes for it. Well, I hope that for you too. I'm very excited to see it. I'd love to know coming towards the end of the interview, you know, what is something that you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career so far? There's lots of things. I think maybe this is, I don't know if this is like specific to me, but it, took me a while to realize that you don't find the perfect collaborators at least there's no such thing and that collaboration is actually just really hard because typically you're just working with people that are really opinionated all the time and you have to that's the job like I have an opinion and have been described as possibly the most stubborn person like in the world so I'm very clear about what I think is kind of right and everything and there has to be like this alignment this kind of kind of marriage of ideas which should should have tension between them they have to kind of find and earn their place and everything and it's and it's hard and so this idea that you know collaboration I think collaboration is difficult and collaborators are difficult like both of those things for me are true but it doesn't mean it's not working I think for a while I was maybe seeking this kind of this idea that collaboration is always harmony somehow or or something but actually I've really made my peace in the last few years actually there's never a perfect collaborator there are there are always there's always going to be tension in that space but that's a good thing this dovetails into the other thing which is like again comes back to a thing earlier which is like you can't undervalue niceness in that process of collaboration of just being nice but sometimes it feels easier to instead of be like really kind of frustrated like kind of directly like actually just you know be the person that always takes the temperature down and so finally I would love to know what is a film from a woman director that you think is a hidden gem or just something that you'd like to recommend to them? this is really good I had to really think about this because I wanted to kind of I suppose say something that wasn't hopefully this that feels kind of new to people but there was this wonderful film made in the 80s by a east asian director called anna hui and she did a film called boat people but it's probably not the film like you think which is like about a boat person's journey of like fleeing their home country under like horrendous you know circumstances and being adrift at sea and then being saved or not being saved. But she did the story of the people that were kind of left behind and about, and it's about a photographer who goes over, who's supposed to take, you know, pictures and stories about this wonderful new Vietnam that's arisen now. But actually those years after the war were really difficult and they were really difficult for my family. But she made this really beautiful film that spoke very directly to those that were left behind about the, the violence and the dangers and the threat of the people 
that are left behind that didn't get away and that actually in the idea that after war that everything's going to be okay so she made that very specific story and it's a, a really great story Thank you for sharing that recommendation with me. And thank you so much for your time today. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I feel like I could definitely ask you so many more questions. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your honesty as well. Um, I've really appreciated it. Thank you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. <laughs>